I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. And our second reading is Romans 8. 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in, our, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This Easter, we have been looking through uh, a series of uh, what is called the Servant Songs a series of prophecies that were given by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the Lord Jesus walked on this earth. And we've been exploring uh, how we are to think of the person and work of Jesus. Now, Jesus, you'll have to admit, whether you're a follower of his or not, is an attractive person. He is compelling The fact that they are still writing books, they are still making movies of Jesus and his life. Obviously, they put spins on it in all sorts of different directions. But Jesus still provokes interest today. Why is he such a compelling figure? I'd like to suggest that the prophecy that we're looking at this morning, this third servant song, it captures Uh, It gives insight into why Jesus is such an enigmatic figure, why he is such an example of strength and resilience on one hand and compassion and love on the other, why he is such a model of integrity and authenticity, why you have this wonderful combination 
of things that don't normally come together, like great love and great power, like majesty and humility. How is it that the Lord Jesus, we find these things in him together? Now, this is an important question for the Christian. Uh, because we are told that if we are disciples of Christ, our aim is to become like our teacher, like our master, to become like the Lord Jesus. So we need to know him better so that we might become like him. For those who maybe this morning are still, as Karen introduced us to, still sorting out the question of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, uh, it's great that you will hopefully see how we are to think more clearly about what he is like. We've got four points this morning. They're on your notes there. Uh, a received word, a rejected word, a trusted word, and a vindicated word. So if you want to take notes, there's a sermon outline. You know where I'm going. Uh, I'm not going to spend equal amounts of time in each section, so you can kind of work out what that means. Uh, but let's dive in. The word that is received. We start in Isaiah 50 verse 4. This is the servant himself speaking. He says, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. Wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. Now, Jesus, you would have to admit, no matter what you think of him, you would have to acknowledge that Jesus is a great teacher. But what we actually see here, that the great teacher, first and foremost, this servant of the Lord, is a great learner. Jesus is literally saturated with scripture. He writes in this morning by morning, he wakens me, he wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. He is one that is saturated with God's word. And if we go to the gospels, we see this. So Jesus is confronted by Satan and tempted three times. What is his response Three times he quotes scripture. Jesus, as he faces the trials and temptations of his ministry, when he's looking for direction, where does he go? Again and again, he quotes scripture. He goes back to God's word in scripture. Jesus models for us. He models for us Christian life and ministry. He models for us this daily immersion in God's word. Sure, Jesus didn't have his NIV uh, Bible that he could just pick up at any times, but Jesus did better than having an NIV Bible. Jesus learnt God's word. He would have sat under teachers. You saw him in Luke chapter 2 engaging with the teachers of the law in the temple and asking questions. He wanted to know. We can have a picture of Jesus that... um, you know, this, this very aware, very alert, phenomenally intelligent baby sitting in a crib, you know. Uh, we sing songs like an away in a manger, the Lord Jesus, you know, no crying he makes. No, Jesus cried and he had to learn as we have to learn. Uh, he is human as we are human. He is also God. 
But sometimes I think we downplay the fact that Jesus spent 30 years preparing for his ministry. He spent 30 years learning, growing in grace, as Luke describes this. Hebrews talks about him learning obedience. It's not that he disobeyed, but he had to learn the path that he worked on. And he does that as he goes again and again into God's word. The servant of the Lord says, morning by morning, he wakens me. Wakens my ear to listen like being one instructed. Sometimes people say of Trinity churches that we kind of make a bit too much of the Bible, uh, that there's lots of different things uh, that Christian churches should be doing, and you guys, you're a bit one-eyed, you know, it's Bible, 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 Bible. You go to a growth group, it's all about the Bible. You go to a youth group, it's all about the Bible. You go to kids' church, it's all about the Bible. Come here, it's all about the Bible. A bit, a bit boring, really, isn't it? <laughs> no. The Lord Jesus models this for us. How do we know God? We know God through his word, by his spirit. This is how we know God. The funny thing is, uh, someone did some research a while ago about Christians who'd kind of gone off the boil. Maybe you've felt that yourself. Uh, you've, you, you've looked back at the time when you were really excited about knowing Jesus. You were really excited about living each day for Jesus but things have gone off the boil. You know, the passion has faded. You've settled into this sort of peaceful coexistence with Jesus. You're not walking away, but it's just not really that exciting for you anymore. And you know what? They asked these people, they explored what was happening almost universally. When they asked these people, are you reading the Bible and praying regularly? The answer came back, no. So you imagine a human relationship, imagine a husband and wife or a family, brother, sister, housemate, and you just stop talking to each other. You know, maybe try that for a couple of days if you want to see how that works. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You want to have a relationship, you've actually got to talk. You've actually got to listen. God's word and prayer are essential. And when they talked to these people and found that they had reignited that flame of relationship with God, what had changed? Any surprises? They'd started reading God's word. They'd started spending time in prayer. So maybe if that's you this morning, take a note from the servant. He wakens me morning by morning. Wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. Jesus models the word-centric pattern of Christian life and ministry. I grew up in a family. Uh, my mother would have um, uh, little, um, little cliches is probably the wrong word because it describes them as, you know, those little phrases that parents of a certain generation, maybe you've got it, you know, the... The, the early bird catches the worm, sort of that kind of thing. Uh, and mum had one that was very disparaging of Christians. She said, uh, he's, of, he's so heavenly minded that he's of absolutely no earthly use. Have you heard that? Okay. Jesus is so heavenly minded. The servant of the Lord is so heavenly minded that he's of eminent, practical, earthly use. 
he tells us the Lord has given him a well-instructed tongue, not just fed his head with knowledge, but enabled him to then share it with others to know the word that sustains the weary. And we saw this in Jesus, didn't we? Jesus, obviously, the incarnate Son of God, God with us. His words sustained the weary. He spoke words of grace and compassion. He describes it in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The scribes and the Pharisees were very good at setting to-do lists for their followers. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you are good enough, if you keep on striving. And Jesus comes and says, grace. God's love precedes any effort that we make. Come to me, he says, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find Rest for your souls. Now, maybe this morning you're here and you don't find your faith very restful. Come back. Come back to the gospel of grace. Come back to the servant of the Lord who is gentle and humble in heart. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus spoke a message that we have ultimately in the gospel of grace, but all of his teaching, all of his teaching, it is there to comfort the weary. Jesus speaks and his words line up with God's words. His words as his father's words. The father instructs him, the servant says here, so that he might speak the word to the weary. In John's gospel, we have Jesus saying that the words he speak are the ones that the father has taught him. Jesus passes on God's word. There's not like the Old Testament. Well, that's God, the father, the New Testament. Well, that's Jesus. It's all God's word, which brings me briefly onto a hobby horse. Uh, Look at your Bible. Does it look like this? Okay, I want to just jump up and down for about 30 seconds on why I hate red letter Bibles. Okay. Why I hate red letter. Do I need to actually even say it? Because it implies that one bit of the Bible is more important than all the other bits. That the bits that are recorded as coming out of Jesus' mouth are more God's word than all the other bits. But you know what? Jesus didn't think like that. So when he's answering a question on marriage, he goes back and he, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, but he doesn't actually even quote the words that come out of the father's mouth. He quotes the editor of Genesis and says, God said, from the beginning, a man will leave husband and leave father and mother and be united to his wife and all that kind of stuff. He quotes the editor who makes this little gloss in Genesis and says, that's God's word to you. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes Isaiah. It's all God's word. It's all God's word. So it's not saying go and throw your red letter Bible out, but I know I tend to, I tend to go looking for black letter Bibles and they do exist. They are out there. Um, 
remember, it's all God's word to us. But here we have the servant of the Lord. He, he is someone who is instructed. who is someone who lives in close personal relationship with God. Who God the Father, his Father, teaches him so that he might teach others. Who blesses him in relationship so he might bless others by calling them into relationship. By being the one who speaks the word that sustains the weary. And at the end of this section, in verse 5, he asserts, I have not been rebellious. This is one who listens, who learns, and who lives. He lives it out perfectly. So much so that in John 8, 46, when he's arguing with his opponents, he says, who of you can can, uh, prove me guilty of any sin? He gives them a chance. Give me one thing that you think I have done contrary to God's law and they cannot answer. I have not been rebellious. Now, theologians call this the active righteousness of Christ. That he lived in perfect obedience to his father. That if he was to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord... He would be given not guilty, not guilty. There would be nothing to bring against him. His active righteousness is perfect, absolutely perfect. He lives in obedience to the word. It was a word received, a word that sustains the weary and also a word that sustains him. Last week in Isaiah 49, we saw that the servant identified himself as a prophet. Now, being a prophet in the Old Testament was not a happy job. was not something that was going to give you good benefits. Being a prophet in the Old Testament meant abuse, degradation, shame, Stephen, when he confronts the Sanhedrin, he says to them, he says, was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? And the servant says, as a prophet, I have not shrunk back. I have not turned away. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, confronts them with the word of the Lord. And like every prophet before him, they persecuted him. Jesus clashed with them because God's will crossed their own sinful, rebellious hearts. This is the one who says, I have not rebelled, speaking the words to the ones who said, we will rebel. Is it any wonder? He says in Isaiah... 50 verse 6, he says, I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from the mocking or the spitting. Let me read to you from Luke 22. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. 
John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up at him again and again and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Mark 15. The soldiers led Jesus away into the praetorium. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit upon him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is a rejected word. He offered his back to those who beat him. His cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. He did not hide his face from the mocking and the spitting. But did he deserve it? Did he deserve it? No. And the servant knows this. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Let let them who bring charges against me. Let, Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn? The servant of the Lord, the one who turned his back to those who beat him. He knows he is innocent. He knows he deserves nothing of what he is getting. He's not suffering for his sin. He knows that the father is perfectly just. God will vindicate him. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn? This word, this one who is rejected, the one instructed by the Father who speaks the word to the weary, who is rejected by the world, he recognizes that the Father backs his word as the Father backs him. He will be vindicated. There at the end of verse 9, they will wear out like a garment and the moths will eat them up. Their arguments are full of holes and they will not stand. This word though, even though most turned away, some then and now put their trust. Isaiah 50 verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? It's interesting here. The servant goes up another notch. In Isaiah 42, he was a king who brought justice, not just to Israel, but to the nations. In Isaiah 49, he brings God's word and salvation to the entire world. And here we have the word of the servant placed alongside the fear of the Lord. 
To do one is to do the other. The servant is more than just a prophet. The servant is God's representative. To fear the Lord is to obey the servant. They go hand in hand. So someone who says, I love God, I don't want much to do with Jesus. They know nothing of the servant of Jesus or of God. Acts 4 verse 2 tells us that Jesus alone can save. There is no other name under heaven given to humans so that they may be saved. This word, the word of the servant, is God's word. We need to remember that the gate is small and the road is narrow. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of the servant? The word, the word that sustains the weary, the word that speaks to our desperate need for rest, for peace. It's a word, a word of judgment. It's a word that tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we chase things that are not God's. That we enslave ourselves to things that can never be our true Lord's. That we actually degrade ourselves by serving things that are not God. The gospel is a word first and foremost of judgment. But then it also tells us this word of comfort is a word of salvation. We have a desperate need. And he has met that freely by his grace. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are freely justified by his grace. Romans 3. This word that sustains the weary is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah continues. The servant continues. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trusting in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Now, this sounds probably a bit strange. We're used to the Bible talking about, you know, your word is a light to my feet and a lamp for my path. You know, Jesus is the light of the world. What's, what's this darkness? Well, the servant is recognizing that sometimes when you walk the path of the servant like him, You'll walk through the opposition. You'll walk through the pain, the humiliation. You'll walk through the darkness, the frustration, the injustice, and the doubt. One writer this week that I read, he said, darkness is what faith is for. And you can see the path. You don't need to trust Darkness is what faith is for. And the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he said this in a sermon entitled The Happy Christian. You'd love to listen to The Happy Christian, wouldn't you? He said, The worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. So even though you are copying it, you know that the one under whose hand you rest is too 
wise to err and too good to be untimed. He trusts him when he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. How can we do that? It's because the servant who passed through the darkest hour for us has given us an encouragement, an example, and through the gift that comes to us through faith, he has given us his spirit. This word, received, rejected, trusted and vindicated. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the word that he speaks, the gospel that he holds out, is not something that is well received within our world. Of all the people who put their faith, there are many, many more who will not. Our society often looks for other options. Okay, Jesus, yeah, I kind of like him a bit, but I don't like the bit that he actually thinks he should be king. Jesus and authority cuts across our own sin, cuts across our own desire to be the boss. And so the servant continues. He said, all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches. What's he talking about? Well, they're in the darkness. And the servant says, if you walk with me, you walk by faith. And they say, no, 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 I don't like that. (laughs) So I'm going to light my own little fire. I've got my flaming torch. He says, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. These are other things that we put our faith in, other things that we trust. What other options are there? Well, there are religious options. Take your pick. There are secular options. Take your pick. Fundamentally, things that say, this is what you need to be doing to be set right. This is the problem. This is the solution. And all of those things are rival gods. All of those things are rivals to the one true God. All of those things are gospels apart from the one true word. You want a full life, a life of meaning and purpose. Well, you've got to pursue it through all sorts of different things. Or you've got to listen to Jesus. He says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you life in abundance. Who do you believe? The gods of materialism, the gods of family, the gods of sex and relationship and everything. Or the one true God, the servant of the Lord. How does it get fixed? How do you find these things? How do you fix the problems? Well, science will fix it. Knowledge will fix it. Drugs will fix it. Sex will fix it. Psychologists will fix it. Take your pick. The society offers us lost of saviours. Or Jesus comes and says, I will fix it by taking it back upon myself. I will bear what you could not bear. I will bear a yoke that is so heavy it would crush you so that by my grace you might stand. The servant here says, if you want to light your own fires, they will come back at you. The fires you have lit will consume you. Paul in Romans 1 tells us that God hands people over into the consequences of their rebellion and that is what the servant is saying here. If that's what you want, that's what you will have. 
But what he says here, chilling words, what you receive from my hand, you will lie down in torment. There is no salvation in any other name apart from Christ. Jesus was confident. The servant of the Lord stood firm. He was confident because he was perfect. As he said to his opponents in John, who of you can prove me guilty of any sin? Now, I can't say that. Even if I only had today to work on, I still can't say that. And I don't think you could either. What hope is there for us? Well, this is the word to the weary. This is the word to those in desperate need. This is the word of the gospel. Because the Lord Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. His perfect obedience is what each of us owed to our creator. His active righteousness, his perfect record, the Bible teaches us that through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the call to put our trust in him, that becomes ours. That comes to us. We don't just get a declaration of not guilty, price paid. We get a perfect record that shines with HDs, which shines with H, A pluses, which kicks every key performance indicator for life that you could imagine because Jesus's record is ours. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. So God doesn't see my failing efforts, my flawed sinful heart. He sees Christ's perfect performance. And not only that, Jesus not only gives us his righteousness, but he takes the penalty. Tim Keller says he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died to bring us to God. That is the word that comforts the weary. That is the word that is the light yoke. Because what do we need to do? We just need to receive it by faith and that itself is a gift. So if salvation is by grace, God's free gift from first to last so that no one can boast. That is the light yoke. That is the easy word. And so if we rest in him, we can have the confidence that no matter what opposition we face, no matter what beating, mocking, spitting we can be confident because in Christ it is ours I want to finish reading from Romans chapter 8 Paul writes if God is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who declares to be in the right. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. 
Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, in the mocking and the beating and the spitting and the shame and the rejection, in all these things, the trouble, the hardship, the persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As the servant, so we can be convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we see in these verses from Isaiah the wonderful steadfastness, the wonderful faithfulness that you showed to the servant, your son, the Lord Jesus. He could have absolute confidence because you are absolutely trustworthy. He could stand in the face of rejection because he knew that you would never reject. He could face any opposition because he knows that you would never abandon him. Father, we acknowledge our rejection, our opposition. Father, we know that it is only by grace that we are saved through faith. We know that we have sinned. We know that we fall short. But Father, through the work of the most beloved servant, through his perfect life and his death on our behalf, we know that our sins have been washed away and our record before you is as perfect as his because it is his. Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to wonder and marvel at your grace. That we would be astounded at your love for us. And Father, we would have a confidence like the Lord Jesus had that absolutely nothing can separate us from your love for us that you lavished upon us in Christ because you are completely trustworthy, completely loving and in Christ the work is completely finished. And in his name we pray. Amen.